with us this morning to worship God together at Chillicothe Bible Church. Uh, uh, did some fishing yesterday over in Indiana at my dad's pond, caught a bunch of fish and had a big fish fry at their house. So, uh, But I also reminded myself that I need to wear a hat now that I have this hairstyle. Um, uh, so if you see a glow, it's not that I have been with the Lord on the mountain, okay? <laughs> uh, it's that uh, my head and face got a little bit uh, tanned or burned or something like that. I'm hoping that it doesn't start peeling in here uh, this week, <laughs> but uh, probably not going to be that lucky. Um, the, uh, the, our topic this morning, I'll just prep you in advance, okay? Uh, one, of the, one of the disadvantages to being an expository preacher, in other words, a guy who goes through a book of the scriptures kind of a chunk at a time, is that you just have to preach what's there next. Last week, we had a sermon on hell. This week, we have a sermon on divorce. Uh, These are two things that are not necessarily at the head of my list of favorite things to talk about. Uh, If I got to choose, I would talk about the gospel and the glory of God and the, the holiness and love of the triune being who sent his son for us. I do that every week because I have never gotten over the fact that the God who created me also loves me and loved me enough to send his son to die for me. But when you do go through the text like this, what it, what it does do for you as both a preacher and as a church is that it doesn't allow you to escape and avoid the passages that uh, don't necessarily come up alongside you and put an arm around you and give you a warm squeeze. This is one of the passages that more like backs you up against the wall and pokes you in the chest and reminds you that God is holy. And that as Isaiah said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is a tough text. It's probably the toughest text on the issue of marriage and divorce in the entire Bible. It's tough. But because it is here, and because, as we, we confess, according to 2 Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction and training in righteousness, that the man of God might be fully equipped. We're going to look at this here this morning. God is holy, and he does not think about things like we do. And there is a gap many times between our thinking on a topic and God's thinking. And where that gap exists, it's our responsibility to move God's way. Amen? It's not his responsibility to come our way and think like us. It's our responsibility to transform our thinking, as Romans 12 says, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that our thinking aligns with his and that our reactions and viewpoint aligns with God's, not the other way around, right? We are not to be like uh, the old cynic Voltaire said that God created man in his own image and since then man has returned the favor right? We're not to do that. We're not to try and make God over into what we want him to be. 
Uh, there is a God who exists and a God that we want, and they're not the same. Uh, and our job is to stop seeking the God that we want and to start seeking the God who is, right? Uh, roughly 80% of Americans get married at some point over the course of their life. Um, if you are a single person, odds are at some point you will not be single, you will be married. Uh Roughly 80% uh, of all adult Christians get married. And at the same time, uh, approximately one in three marriages, Christian and non-Christian alike, which is in itself disturbing, will end in divorce. That as a, as, as a matter of fact, uh, according to the best statistics I've been able to discern, within the community of self-identified believers in Jesus Christ, uh, approximately one-third of, of Christians will get a divorce in the United States of America. Now, that is not true of our church, praise God. Okay, Our numbers are way, 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 way less than that. At the same time, I know that there are often periods in your marriage when people struggle. I have had them, you have had them, right? And in the back of your mind, there's always this thought, well, I guess if things really get bad, we can, we can hit the eject button, right? And that thought can't be there. Not if you're going to be a biblical Christian. Uh, ladies, if you look at it statistically, and I'm saying this not to be nasty, but as your pastor, roughly 80% of divorces in this country are initiated not by men, but by women. There are reasons for that, I understand. Um, but divorce is largely a wife-initiated phenomenon. It's a tough, tough thing to love, honor, and cherish the one that you swore before God and these witnesses until death parts us. To do that for your entire life is a tough thing. And it is, a, it is I think, one of the ultimate measures of maturing faith in Jesus Christ when you have a good marriage. A good marriage underlines the commitment to Christ that you have made. A bad one undermines your commitment to Christ. Because if you are saying to people, we are both committed followers of Jesus Christ, and yet you cannot get along with the person that you swore before God to love, what does that say about how well you are following Jesus Christ, right? You either underline or undermine your public profession of faith based on your marriage. You do. One of the primary witnesses that we have as believers in Christ. This is a tough text, but let's look at it, okay? Let's look at what Jesus has to say about this. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea. This is Mark chapter 10, and across the Jordan, again, crowds of people came to him, and he, as was his custom, he taught them. 
Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So Jesus is headed quickly toward Jerusalem. And he uh, is, has left his Galilean ministry. That part of his ministry has wrapped up. He has left any of the ministry to the north and to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That has all finished. And he is headed now down into Judea, and then he's going to spend a little time in Perea, which is the region on the other side of the Jordan. And then within just a few weeks, he's going to head into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry and the crucifixion. Um, That'll have to wait a few weeks for us to get there. But it's just about to wrap up completely. Uh, basically, the Gospels are long introductions uh, to crucifixion and resurrection stories. Uh, and the last, the last um, five chapters of Mark are devoted to the last seven days of Jesus' life. And you've got all this chunk of text ahead of that. That's devoted to the three-year pre- period prior to that. But Jesus is in Perea, and he is, which is this region on the other side of the Jordan. And some Pharisees come as part of a crowd. As you know, as as Jesus went everywhere in public, a crowd would gather, and he would start teaching. And as part of the crowd, there were some Pharisees, and they come and ask him a question. And it's not an innocent question. The text says they came to test him. And they're, 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 in other words, they're laying a trap for him. And they're going to ask him about divorce. Now, there's two reasons that they would want to ask this question. Number one, there was disagreement within Judaism itself as to the legality of divorce. Everybody agreed that the law said that you could do it, but what was the issue was under what circumstances. And there were followers of Rabbi Hillel who said... Well, you can divorce your wife for any reason, including the fact that she burned breakfast. I'm serious, okay? Uh, My scrambled eggs were overdone. We're getting divorced, okay? Now, that's obviously a great scenario, right? Loving, wonderful home in that environment, Um, creating that kind of a performance standard. Um, And then on the other hand, there were people who said, no, the only reason, this was the followers of Rabbi Shammai who said, no, the only reason you can get divorced is if your spouse is immoral. If your spouse cheats on you in some way, um, then you you can get a divorce. And the reason is, is that according to the Old Testament law, what was the penalty for immorality? They took you outside the city gate 
uh, to the to the city elders, and they said, and they gave testimony as to your immorality. And if there were two or three witnesses, then he took you outside the city and turned you into a rock pile. It was called stoning. And then you did not have a problem getting remarried because you were not divorced; you were a widow. Right now, under Jewish law, uh, that was the requirement. Under now that they're ruled by the Romans, you couldn't do that anymore. They did not allow Jews to carry out the death penalty. Only Roman officials could do that. And so the followers of Rabbi, Hill, of Rabbi Shammai said, well, if she is immoral or if he is immoral, then you can get divorced because that is the next best thing to taking them outside and stoning them. And what they were then coming to Jesus to ask was, so where do you fall here, Rabbi? Are you the one of the liberals or one of the conservatives? Where are you at? And what they're trying to do, partly, is to split Jesus' own followers because they're jealous of his ministry and of the number of people who are following him and wanting to be to come in his footsteps. And so they're saying, well, let's see if we can peel off a chunk of these followers. Let's ask him a controversial question. You know, if he comes out on the liberal end, his conservative followers will leave him. If he comes out on the conservative end, his liberal followers will leave him, and that'll be great for us. But the other reason they ask is because of where Jesus is. This little area called Perea is part of the kingdom that is ruled by a man named Herod Antipas. You remember him? Who's Herod Antipas? He was the king who chopped off John the Baptist's head. Why did he do that? Because John the Baptist had criticized him for marrying his niece, which was forbidden by Old Testament law, after she had divorced her other uncle in order to marry him. And John had said, you're really screwed up here. Okay? I mean, this is, this is just messed up on so many levels. He should not be married to this woman shouldn't marry his niece, and he definitely shouldn't marry his niece after she divorced her other uncle. And John was put in prison, and then he was killed. And so what they're trying to do is to encourage Jesus to get himself in trouble, and maybe he winds up in prison or killed like John, right? Because back several chapters ago, we saw that the Pharisees and the Herodians had already started plotting together to look for a way to get rid of Jesus. And they're thinking, well, hey, he happens to be in Herod's territory. The last fiery preacher to burn Herod up on this issue got, got imprisoned and killed. Maybe let's see if we can go two for two on this, right? Jesus answers their question, though, with a question. And he says this, what did Moses command you? And they have to repeat what Moses commanded. It's, uh, if you're curious, it's Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4. We won't turn there. But they summarize it for him. And he says, Moses permitted a man to, to write a certificate of divorce to his wife and to send her away. In other words, well, Jesus, Moses allows us to get divorced. And look at what Jesus says. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. 
In other words, divorce occurs because repentance doesn't. Let me say that again. Divorce occurs because repentance doesn't. If you are repentant and have a heart which is soft toward God, there's no need for divorce, right? Especially if both of you are repentant people. But he says, but God recognized in his law that not everybody was going to be repentant and get right with God. And so he allowed you to make the best of a horrible situation and in some circumstances to get divorced. But this is not, this is not part of the ideal program here. This was not God's will. This isn't God's uh, plan A for your life that this would happen. This is something that was permitted as a response to human sinfulness, not as a desired outcome. At the, at the root of divorce, ultimately, is that at least one of the two spouses says to the other one, I will have my way. I will have my way. And I will have my way, though the marriage breaks, I'm going to have my way. Jesus says, there is no such thing as a non-sinful divorce. No such thing. Sin is at the root of it from the very beginning. And obviously there are degrees. Uh, sometimes there is one party who is more innocent than the other, but there is still sin enough to go around. Amen? Two fallen people get married. Uh, you're going to have sin. You're going to have it. Because you carried it with you into the relationship, right? And unless there was ongoing repentance, both of you, looking toward Christ to heal you from your sin, you're going to have, at some point, the thing come unscrewed, right? Um, can a man divorce his wife? According to Jesus, yes. But doing so is evidence of a hardened heart toward God and your spouse. Now, verse 6 through 9 get, uh, get interesting. In them, Jesus gives God's design for what a marriage is supposed to be. Uh, and let me tell you why uh, he does it this way. He's, he does this, first of all, because the Pharisees are so focused on the question of whether or not a person can get divorced that they forgot what marriage is supposed to even be about. In other words, he says God's design doesn't involve divorce, it involves marriage. And the, and the circumstances under which you can end this relationship are not the point. The continuation of the relationship is the point of the scriptures. And this is the other thing, um, it's because, this is the other reason, is that they missed what else Moses wrote in what they quoted. He asked them a question, what did Moses command you? And what they give him is the little bit of Deuteronomy on divorce. But according to Jewish tradition, one I happen to think is right, by the way, uh, Moses wrote all five of the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, 
Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so Jesus says, oh yeah, well, that's not all Moses said. Let's go back to what else he had to say on this topic back in Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, when God performed the first marriage in the garden between Adam and the woman, Eve, that he had taken from Adam's rib, he says when he put them both together, he created them male and female. In other words, complementary. There, there, it's a union of opposites, right? Uh, it probably goes without saying in our church, but not in our culture, that marriage is a male and female relationship. Amen? Male and female relationship. And then in addition to that, he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife be united to his wife, and the two will, no long, will, will become one flesh. Uh, a lot of times, you know, Jesus walks them back through this because a lot of times the Pharisees are just like us in that we go through the Scriptures looking for the loopholes to, dis, to, to allow us to disobey what God has clearly said elsewhere. And we go, well, gosh, God's teaching on marriage is really tough, and it is. Well, let's see if there are any loopholes in this where I can get around full obedience. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. They're not focused in their thinking and in their energies on how to preserve marriages and looking at what marriages are supposed to look like. In other words, what's the blueprint? Let's go back to the original design and see where we got off here. They're focused on how do we get out of this thing? Jesus is saying, look here, you're to look at marriage. What's a marriage supposed to be? Uh, marriage is designed to be permanent. It's not designed for dissolution. Uh, it's God who brings the couple together. And in a marriage, the two become one even as they retain their distinctness. Uh, and that kind of oneness isn't ever, isn't ever supposed to come to an end. And according to Jesus, once God, you know, you may have gotten your marriage down at the JP or where, you know, drive through in Vegas or wherever, okay? But according to Jesus, it's God who joins you together. And once it is God who has joined you together, it says, let no man ever separate the two of you. And that's you, that's the same justice of the peace who married you, that's whoever. Let no man ever separate. And it's man in a general sense, by the way. Not men don't get divorced from your wives. It's human beings don't get divorced from one another. This is a divine relationship. Um, you know, there is more uh, that you can learn. It, one of the things you see in the rest of your New Testament, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. In other words, Christ and the church is the pattern that we're to build our marriages after. It's not that 
our marriages, our marriages are the pattern for Christ in the church. It's no, that Christ and the church are the pattern for our marriages. You can look at uh, Deuteronomy 6, and it's real interesting. Remember, the great Shema, the great theological confession of the people of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know that word for oneness that's there? Interesting word. It's often used throughout your Old Testament as a word for composite oneness. Okay? God says in, I believe it's Jeremiah, I will take this, it goes on one stick, right, belonging to Ephraim and the tribes associated with him, and on the other, right, Judah and the tribes associated with him, and hold them in your hand so they become one stick. You know where else that word is used? Genesis 2. The two will become one flesh. There's a union, even though there's distinctness, there's a union. And your relationship, husband and wife, in a high and holy sense, imitates the kind of oneness within God himself. This is not a just a simply contractual arrangement between two parties. This is a spiritual reality that couples enter into when they get married. It is designed to imitate Christ and the church. It is designed also to imitate the very being of the triune God. And so it is a very serious thing to bring it to an end. Very serious thing. Uh, God expects it to be honored even when it's tough. Amen? Jesus goes on, verses 10 to 12. Uh, the disciples ask him, you know, in kind of the best political tradition, would you like to re- revise and extend your remarks here, Jesus? <laughs> because, you know, that's some pretty hardcore stuff out there you were giving them. Can you give us a little, a little, you know, maybe a lower standard we can live up to here. You know what Jesus does? Does he give them a lower standard? No, he buries the needle over on the other side. He says divorce and remarriage after divorce equals adultery. Really? Giddy up. This is what he says. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. In Jesus' terms, divorce and remarriage equals adultery. It's adultery whether you are the wife or the husband who initiated the divorce. It's adultery, pure and simple. Uh, serial monogamy, in other words, is not an option. Well, I'm, I'm faithful to this wife that I married after I divorced that wife, and now I'm going to divorce this wife and marry that one. Serial monogamy does not work, doesn't wash, according to Jesus. This is a tough passage. And let me say this, okay? I'll just, for all of you who are thinking... But wait a minute, whoa, 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 hold on, wait, wait, stop. There are exceptions to this. 
Matthew 19, Jesus says, if your husband or wife commits adultery or is immoral, depending on how you want to render pornea, then you can get divorced and you can get remarried, and it's not adultery when you get remarried. Yes, that's true. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says that if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, that you can divorce them. If they have left you because of your faith in Christ and walked away from your marriage, that you can divorce them. And that you, some commentators would say that you can then also get remarried then. And it's not adultery when you get remarried. Isn't that true, Pastor? Yes, it's true. Both of those passages are in your Bible. They are both true. But I want us to be careful about letting Jesus' teaching here in this passage lose its force. Lest we be guilty of doing the same thing that the Pharisees are guilty of, which is going through the law looking for the loophole. Sometimes Jesus doesn't put the exceptions in here, I believe, because he knows that our tendency is to go through the Scripture looking for the exceptions and then coming up with all kinds of convoluted reasons why our circumstances fit the exception rather than looking at it and going, you know what, I don't think my circumstances do fit the exception And so I don't have a legitimate reason for getting divorced. And so if I do get divorced and I get remarried, I'm an adulterer. Let me say this, okay? The Westminster Confession says, the chief end of man is to uh, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I think that's a pretty good summation of God's purpose in creating human beings, actually. It's an old confession, uh, but it's a good one, especially on that point, okay? And that we are to glorify Him in every area of our life. We're to glorify God in our job. We're to glorify God in the way we raise our children. We're to glorify God in how we speak. We're to glorify God in how we think. There's a a way to glorify God in how you are alone together with your spouse. There is a way to glorify God in the most intimate, private moments of your thought life and a way to dishonor God in all of these realms. And your focus needs to be, how do I glorify God in this? How do I glorify God in these circumstances? I have a chronic disease. How do I glorify God? My spouse is dying of cancer. How do I glorify God? My job just ended and I have no income. How do I glorify God? I, I got married and I found out that spouses and fiancés are not the same creature. Shock of shocks, Okay. Amber, God bless you. You're going to find that out in about (laughs) eight weeks, okay? (laughs) Okay? And you're going to have a decision to make. 
how do I glorify God for the next 60 years or until Jesus comes, whichever comes first? Okay? And these Pharisees who've asked this question, and even the disciples here a little bit, are not asking that question. My marriage is tough. How do I glorify God? Is not the question they're asking. They're asking this. My marriage didn't live up to my expectations. How do I get out of this thing? That's the question they're asking. Not, how do I glorify God in my marriage? We are not to look for a loophole in our covenants. Are there some extreme, horrible, awful circumstances in which divorce is justified and remarriage is approved? Yes. But those are not normally the reasons why people get divorced. You know what the most common, I mean, going away, winning by 30 lengths, reason that people give uh, for getting divorced, it isn't adultery, it isn't my unbelieving spouse left me, it is, I know that I swore before God and these witnesses and made a covenant with my partner before God and gave his name as I did so and made my vow. But in spite of all of that, I can't get along with this person, and I don't like them anymore. And they don't like me, and we're, getting, we're busting this out of this thing. That is the reason why 90% of people, Christian and non-Christian, get divorced. is because they will not get along with the person to whom they swore before God to love honor, and cherish. This is tough. Let me say this, okay, just by way of application. If you're divorced, and especially if you got divorced for unbiblical reasons, let me ask you, with all of the love in my heart, let me, let me ask you this. Have you repented of the sin that got you to that place? Because Jesus says that divorce is evidence of hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. And while you may have been the innocent, quote-unquote, party in all of that, none of us are innocent before God. Amen? As I've said before, and I'll say it again, there are not good people and bad people in the world. There are bad people, and there's Jesus. But up against him, all of us are bad people. Amen? And so there is sin enough always to go around. Well, I wasn't the one who committed adultery. Well, okay, fine. Were you the one who didn't tend the fire of romance in your own home? Well, I wasn't the one who uh, wanted to get divorced. Well, that's fine. But were you the one who pursued the relationship according to the pattern that God had laid out? There's always sin enough to go around. Always. 
if you married an abusive person? Why? Have you dealt with that issue in your heart? If you married an adulterer, why did they commit adultery? Even if you were completely innocent of everything that was done to you and you felt that you had no other choice, let me ask this. Have you forgiven your former spouse of all the sin they committed against you? If not, you need to repent. Now, if you're married but struggling, which I think describes everybody who's married, amen? (laughs) Okay. I have a wonderful, fantastic wife who is married to an idiot of a husband, okay? (laughs) Um, And we don't always see eye to eye, and we butt heads sometimes, And some days, it's like metal on metal, and there's no oil in between the parts as they interact. Okay? It's just this kind of loud screeching, like bad breaks, um, sometimes in our relationship, right? And I'll bet you, if you've been married longer than two weeks, you have had those days too. Okay? Here's the thing. We need one another in the church. One of the reasons that God gives us a church family and not just, you know, hey, you go be an individual Christian off on your own and you go be an individual Christian off on your own and we'll just kind of try to individually glorify God as we will, is that you need relationships and friends and help. And you need people in your life who you can come to and lay out your life and say, you know what? Uh... Our marriage is a whole lot like a tire that has gone flat that we drove on for about 80 miles afterward. And all the tread has just come unscrewed, and we're looking for some way of putting this thing back together. You need one another in the church, amen? And we need one another to help. And so if you're married and you're struggling, let me ask you, have you sought some help? Have you been willing to be honest enough and vulnerable enough with each other and with someone else in your life who can help you pull off the side of the road and change the tire or put a plug in it if it's losing air and tell you, look, you know what? The problems you're experiencing right now, they're tough. I've been there. They're tough. But you can get through this. I I just want to tell you, with all of the love of Christ again, as your pastor, I would love, love to help you walk through this so that what you have is not 50 years of gritting your teeth until glory or one of you dies. Okay? And you start praying that maybe God would take your spouse quickly. You know, oh God, I've got another day of being married to this person. Okay? You do, God's design is not for you to have a marriage like that. Okay? This fall, I'm going to preach a series on marriage. And we're going to talk about God's design in all of its fullness and glory. And how God has designed it for us to experience magnificent joy not just at our wedding and not just on our honeymoon, incidentally. 
But for 50 and 60 and 70, and if God tarries, 80 years, okay? For a lifetime of joy and enjoyment and fun and romance together for life. So if you're struggling, get help. Amen? Last thing, guard your heart. Solomon wrote in Proverbs, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Proverbs 4.23. Here in Mark, Jesus identifies the fundamental reason why there is divorce. And he says it's hard-heartedness toward God and toward other people. Hard-heartedness toward God and toward your spouse. That you do not care anymore what God thinks. And so you have decided, in spite of what he thinks, to go your own way. And in spite of what your spouse thinks, to demand your way. And it's a problem that all of us, married, single, divorced, married, too young to be married, too young to be classified as single, anybody who is a who is a human being struggles with their heart. And it's a daily commitment that you have to make to say, I am going to, because I'm a follower of Jesus, prioritize what God says and thinks over what I say and think. And I'm going to yield my heart to, to God's will, even if it costs me. I'm going to do what God says. And that is the way to keep your heart from becoming hardened. Because, you know, I've got, I've got a wedding ring right here. And I almost never take it off. And because of that, I have a giant callus right here on my palm. Okay? Because it, for 14 years, has rubbed and worn that spot right there on my palm. And you know what? I like having it there. But that spot on my hand is the hardest spot on my left hand. Why? Because something has come into contact with my skin to where it has gotten hard, to where I don't feel anything anymore. Because I have not removed the thing which has rubbed up against there. And the same thing can happen to your heart and to mine that we encounter God's word, and we don't necessarily displace it, but we just don't allow it to pierce us anymore. And we just push it off, and it continues to rub on us and rub on us and rub on us until we don't feel it anymore. And our ears grow calloused to the voice of the Spirit, and our heart no longer responds to his word. And we can't hear what he has to say to us. So guard your heart, because it is the wellspring of life. Any place where you say, I know what God's word says, you need to put a period right there. And not put a comma. Followed by the word, however. 
or but, or instead, or something else, right? I know what God's word says, therefore, is a good conclusion, right? I'm going to do what God's word says. Again, if you're married and you're struggling, come see me. Come see one of the elders. We would give every bit of energy we have to help you. If you're divorced, make sure you've repented of what got you there. If you're single, look at what God's design for marriage is supposed to be. And all of us, guard your hearts. Help me to guard mine. Let's pray.